In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Another Trump takedown in the Georgia runoffs. Yes, I wanted to win, but then I added a caveat, and that was let thy will be done. That's one way to spin it. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election here in Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein, one of your hosts, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. Today's episode is a little bit later than usual because it was a late night in Georgia and we wanted to make sure that we had all the latest results we could talk to you about. And, you know, Patricia, we didn't really get all the latest results till around midnight when the final races were called, the, the second district race. So we wanted to make sure we could bring all the latest news to you. Yes, we don't want to talk about a race that has not been called yet. So I wish it was sooner, but, you know, elections are what they are. If you're just listening to us for the first time, we invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so you'll never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Coming up later, we're going to talk about what Georgia elections officials had to say during their testimony before the January 6th committee. But first, the results are in. Patricia, Stacey Abrams, United Democrats behind her candidates, and Donald Trump, United Republicans, against his. Boom. It was a a momentous (laughs) night. (laughs) I worked on that one. It was a momentous night, and Stacey Abrams took a gamble. She endorsed three candidates in unpredictable races. I mean, none of them were really shoe-ins, although Bean Wen was always seen as the front runner. The biggest risk, though, was Charlie Bailey. He finished in second place in the May primary to Kwanzaa Hall and was looked at kind of as an underdog in this race uh, against Kwanzaa Hall, who has a lot of name recognition from serving Atlanta City Council for running for mayor and for briefly serving as a U.S. House member. Yes. Well, I mean, Stacey Abrams, my goodness, you just see her reflection top to bottom in Democratic politics all over this state from the way that Democrats have organized themselves, the way that they are mobilizing their ground game, the way they're raising money, and now the candidates who they've got at the top of the ticket, not well, not just the top ticket, the entire Democratic ticket is basically Stacey Abrams' ideal best case scenario. This is who I want to run with. Georgia Democratic voters, I'm telling you who I want to run with. And Georgia Democratic voters delivered that. Now, she had reasons for picking all of these candidates that she did ahead of the runoffs. Um, but to your point, it really demonstrates how what kind of a strong influence she has in there, especially with Charlie Bailey, because he had gotten a number of other high profile endorsements. He had gotten 
Roy Barnes. He had gotten a number of other sort of high-profile Democrats, and that didn't really move the needle for him. He was late getting into the race. Democrats had plucked him out of the attorney general's race, where Jen Jordan was really their preferred candidate and plopped him over in this LG race. It didn't make that much sense to me at the time. But now that Stacey Abrams uh, got behind him, he just uh, popped right to the top of that leaderboard and won in a commanding fashion on Tuesday in that runoff over Kwanzaa Hall. And I think that Stacey Abrams gets a, a huge chunk of the credit for um, lifting his name ID among Democratic activists voting in there in that uh, election. And then also articulating why she thinks that he would be the right prosecutor. I'm sorry, the right prosecutor, the right person to run. And that's because he is a former prosecutor. And Lucy McBath did a really interesting broadcast commercial for Charlie Bailey. It ran all over Atlanta TV um, in the weekend leading up to the election. And she said, Charlie Bailey is my pick. You know how important gun violence is to me. Charlie Bailey is a former prosecutor, put uh, gang members behind bars. He's my pick. I want him too. And so I think that combination of voices of female, of black female Democratic lawmakers and leaders getting behind Charlie Bailey really fueled his finish in that in that race. And I think it was it's really fascinating to see. Yeah, it was a really interesting race. I mean, very unpredictable. As you mentioned, Democrats had good reason to back Bailey because they know these the soft on crime and defund the police attacks are coming. And in fact, you know, just just, just Wednesday yep. morning. They're already arriving at, at your doorstep in the form of a, of a TV ad by Governor Kemp's campaign. But they know these attacks are coming. And Charlie Bailey, they hope, helps inoculate them from some of those attacks, helps insulate them because he is an anti-gang prosecutor. He has served as a defense attorney as well. So he has experience on both sides of the council table. But then on the other side of, of the ledger is Kwanzaa Hall, who basically ran, I mean, let's be honest, he tried to coast into this nomination. He skipped the Atlanta Press Club debate, which is bad enough. It's one thing to do that. But the worst part of it is he didn't even provide an explanation why to reporters, to the Atlanta Press Club committee itself. I'm on the debate committee. When, when I texted him, when you texted him, hey, you know, what's going on? What's the reason why? Because, you know, scheduling conflict, whatever. It's still, it's still not great, but at least there's an answer. Ignored texts, ignored media interview requests, didn't go to campaign stops, didn't aggressively campaign, had very little social media presence. You know, only started going to forums and things by the very last week of the campaign. And by then, it was too late, as we now know. And frankly, Democrats were also worried about his history. There's a lot of questions about his finances that came up in an AJC WSB investigation when he was a city council member. There's questions about his ties to Kasim Reed and other um, members of the former city hall in Atlanta that would have, you know, brought a different sort of power structure to the state capitol. And Stacey Abrams, you know, wanted her pick, wanted to engineer her ticket and, and you know, took a gamble and it paid off. Yeah, absolutely paid off. There was literally a point where we were speaking amongst ourselves, a group of reporters and saying, is Kwanzaa Hall okay? Like, should we, <laughs> does somebody know him personally? Should we check on him? And that is in the weeks before the runoff. He was an active statewide candidate and literally people had no idea where he was. That's not the kind of campaign that is going to win you a statewide election after all. I also think go Atlanta Press Club. I think that skipping those Atlanta Press Club debates have really damaged a number of candidates who have chosen to do that. Skipping those debates, not just Atlanta Press Club debates, but skipping any, I think sends a signal to voters. This person is either not 
up to the job, doesn't want the job as much as they say they do, or is is sort of coasting in their effort here. So I think um, I think that's a message for future candidates. Those uh, debates, what you say in the debates is not going to make or break you, but going to the debates, I think voters really do hold it against you. Let's hear from Charlie Bailey, who immediately took a shot at the Republican nominee, Burt Jones. The Republican nominee in this race, Burt Jones, he's engaged in a politics of hate and division. It's a politics that says, you know, not everybody's vote does matter the same. And not everybody's child matters the same. And not everybody's community matters the same. Not everybody's school matters the same. It's a politics that says representative democracy is not worth fighting for. It's a politics that says we get to choose whether we win or lose races. That if we lose races, that we can come in and falsely claim and be a false elector for Donald Trump to try to overturn an election. It's a politics that stands against everything that American values stand for. He's not a patriot. He's not a true American. Patricia, there might be Burt Jones's biggest liability, or one of them at least, is the fact that he was one of the phony electors who showed up in December 2020 and tried to cast you know, fake electoral ballots for Donald Trump even after his defeat to Joe Biden. And this is something that federal prosecutors are looking at. This is something investigators are looking at. This is something that Fonnie Willis's investigation in Fulton County is looking at. This is something that Democrats are sure to continue to make an issue that will dog uh, Burt Jones as, as this November uh, general election approaches. hundred percent. And, you know, his other liability is that now he has an opponent who is willing to call him out on that and to hear Charlie Bailey call Burt Jones not a patriot. I mean, can you imagine where this race is going? It is going to be an unbelievably aggressive fight between these two. And I think that is the tone that Stacey Abrams wants up and down the ticket. And somebody also, we've got to look at uh, State Representative B. Wynn, who is in the Secretary of State's race. The message that she's been sending as soon as it became clear that Brad Raffensperger was going to win that race without a primary, her, her, her talking point, her message is Brad Raffensperger is not a friend to Georgia voters. Brad Raffensperger is dangerous. And so they're trying immediately to create this contrast and to just hammer Republicans. And this is, um, we're getting into the reality here now that Georgia is a battleground state, we're going to have battles, real battles up and down the ticket. And so typically these LG races can be a little bit sleepy. Uh, Attorney general races can be kind of a snooze. The Secretary of State's races are rarely hotly contested. And that we've just got a totally new day in politics here in Georgia to have this kind of a setup for November. And that has not even touched on the those races for governor and Senate. Yeah, I mean, the Senate race, the governor race, they're going to get the lion's share of attention. But these are very important races. The attorney general sets the legal tone for the state, decides how to use an office of 90 plus attorneys and and other staffers and investigators to uphold Georgia state laws and decides which challenges to bring to the Supreme Court and which to challenge and uh, bring the federal court system and how to uphold Georgia's laws. Lieutenant governor is the president of the state Senate. The labor commissioner, the insurance commissioner has huge powers, agriculture commissioner, huge powers over their, their parts of the executive branch in Georgia. And you mentioned Bean Wen's easy victory over D. Dawkins Hagel. I mean, just d- demolished her. You know, she succeeded Stacey Abrams in the Georgia House, now holds the seat that Stacey Abrams once held in, in, in the city of in the Atlanta area. And, you know, as 
presented herself as a voting rights champion for a long time. Her challenge now is that a year ago, she might have thought she was going up against Jody Heiss, you know, a pro-Trump election truther, whatever you want to call it, you know, promoted the, all the sorts of election fraud lies, said that he wouldn't have certified the election, you know, would have, would have worked to overturn and invalidate the will of millions of, of George voters, a very clear contrast. The contrast is a little bit murkier, you know, right? And Democrats realize that because Brad Raffensperger, he stood up to Trump. We've all heard that phone call. We'll talk about the testimony a little later in the show, but it's not not as easy as to paint him as an extremist. Democrats still will. They'll say that he supports SB202, the new overhaul of election laws that includes new obstacles at the ballot box. They'll find plenty of reasons to say that he's no election hero. But at the same time, Patricia... We know, we know thousands of Democrats crossed over and voted for Brad Raffensperger in the May primary. And we know it's a lot harder. It's just going to be more challenging to paint him as some far-right extremist than it would have been to paint Jody Heiss and, frankly, David Perdue in the governor's race as such. Well, you know, you just had this span of eight hours on Tuesday that just demonstrated how different Brad Ravensburger's life would have been if he had been pushed into a runoff or had lost his election. But instead of being, you know, in Georgia campaigning for a runoff or uh, sort of planning his exit from the stage, Brad Raffensperger was on Capitol Hill yesterday as B. Wynn was continuing to campaign ahead of that runoff. And he was being praised by House Democrats for his patriotism, who were thanking him sincerely. Thank you for standing up for democracy. And so B. Wynn's job got a lot harder the day that Brad Raffensperger became the clear favorite and the easy nominee for Republicans. Because to your point, Democrats, we talked to a lot of Democrats who voted in that race. I've talked to a number I've talked to Democratic donors who voted for Brad Raffensperger and and said they'll do it again. So uh, that's not to say that B. Wynn doesn't have a really strong chance, but it does illustrate why she spent her entire time in her Democratic debate repeating over and over, Brad Raffensperger is not a friend to Georgia voters. And it's so she's such a fascinating candidate because she is so petite. She appears very diminutive, but she is just an absolute bulldog when it comes to her rhetoric, uh, very prepared and will be uh, ready to go up against Raffensperger. But her, it would have been so different to run against Jody Heiss, to run against Donald Trump's handpicked person to help him overturn the next election if he loses that one too. But instead, she's uh, going to go up against Raffensperger, who is, uh, he didn't win the Profile and Courage Award technically, but he sure got that kind of reception from House Democrats yesterday. Yeah, he, he might have won it had he, uh, had he not run for re-election. Uh, <laughs> exactly. it, it seems more apartisan. Um, let's talk about the Republican side of the ledger. Donald Trump, once again, his picks for high-profile seats in Georgia are rejected. In May, of course, David Perdue and other Trump back challengers to incumbents were trounced. Well, the same went for Trump's picks in these two open U.S. House races that really will pretty much settle the election. I mean, these were districts, the 6th District, the 10th District. They're drawn for Republicans to win. Trump back Vernon Jones, a party-switching former Democrat in the 10th District. Always going to be an uphill battle for Vernon Jones, who, you know, his home is in DeKalb County up until he switched districts and decided to run in rural Northeast Georgia. And he backed Jake Evans, in the 6th District race over Rich McCormick, who was narrowly defeated in his congressional run in 2020. 
both these were uphill battles for Trump's picks. We already talked about Vernon's liabilities. He was looked at as untrustworthy. He switched parties just last year. He endorsed Donald Trump just in 2020. And he was running around calling everyone else a rhino, even though he literally was a Democrat last year. Jake Evans had his own problems. You know, he, he was not well known in the district. His father is well known in Republican circles, but he didn't have much name recognition going into this race. Rich McCormick did because all the ads, all the mailers, all the stuff that he did in the seventh district, well, that bleeds over. You know, TV ads, radio ads, they bleed over. And so a lot of people in the sixth district saw his rhetoric. And in the end, you know, voters, I went out and made multiple voting reporting trips to the 10th district. I live in the sixth district. Voters, you know, that I talked to, they weren't swayed either way by the Trump endorsement. One party chair out in Athens um, in the 10th district said, essentially, he sees Trump's endorsement as neutral. It just doesn't matter in races like this. And it certainly didn't in, in this race. I mean, it might have worked against the candidates because a lot of Republican voters, they're tired of Donald Trump trying to tell them what to do in these races, especially when it comes to endorsing candidates who they don't know, they don't know much about. And in, and in the case of the 10th district, didn't even live in the district. I mean, Vernon Jones was the former DeKalb County CEO who had to move the dis- district to run. Yeah, it's definitely not a rejection of Trump's politics because the men he endorsed against share his politics. They don't share his um, everything that he says and does, but these are extremely conservative candidates who won. I think it's just a rejection of Donald Trump's unbelievably horrible ability to choose candidates who are going to win. And he's making these choices based on what's been good for him. Who has given him money? Jake Evans' dad. Who endorsed him? Who campaigned for him before? Vernon Jones. And so his choices were based totally on his own personal self-interest and had nothing to do with the strength of those candidates. And I think this just tells us that candidates matter and voters respond to good candidates. And Jake Evans is one of the worst candidates to camera I've ever seen in my career. He's just terrible. And I'm sure he's a good person. But if a voter doesn't know Jake Evans, and this is what they've got to go on, that's not a lot to work with. It just was not a convincing package. Vernon Jones not only is not from that district, I talked to plenty of Republican activists who never heard from Vernon Jones, who sent him invitations to come speak to their GOP groups and never even got a response. Like he ran a terrible campaign. He was not responsive, even to the Republicans who did want to try and see if they could get to a place where they could vote for him. And somebody like Rich McCormick, not only did his uh, kind of media bleed over to the 6th District, the new 6th District includes a huge chunk of the old 7th District, in Forsyth County, where all of those voters voted for Rich McCormick last November, and now they're ready to vote for him again next November. And so he had a huge advantage. He also, because he ran last cycle, was just a kind of smoother, more polished, more ready candidate than he was the last time around. And definitely all of those attributes uh, in a stronger quantity than Jake Evans. And then over in the 10th, Mike Collins was just incredibly well-known in that district and very well-liked in that district. And if anybody from Donald Trump's team had gone to the district (laughs) before he made his pick and say, hey, who do you like around here? And they said Mike Collins, he could have endorsed Mike Collins. There's no reason not that he wouldn't have done that. So um, it is, uh, I think it's just an unbelievable indictment against uh, 
just trumps the way he goes about putting the people around him are yes men and donors and not much more than that at this point. And I think uh, Georgians are definitely rejecting that. But conservative voters are not rejecting Trump's politics because um, the guys they've elected support all those things. Yeah, they're showing their independence. I mean, look, Donald Trump's certainly Mike Collins' folks made it very clear to Donald Trump's team his deep roots in the 10th district and all the benefits that, that an endorsement would bring. But Trump didn't care about that. I mean, Vernon Jones was used as a pawn. The endorsement was used as a as an incentive for Vernon Jones to get out of the governor's race because at the time, David Perdue actually had a shot. It looked like at least from polls had a shot about at least forcing a runoff against Brian Kemp. And if even if Vernon Jones gets 5% of the vote, that could risk that. And in the polls, he was showing about 5 10% of the vote. You know, so they struck a bargain. Vernon Jones was going to get out of the governor's race, give David Perdue a clearer shot if he got an endorsement for another race. And they decided it was the 10th. It could have been the 6th, right? It could have been school superintendent. It could have been insurance commissioner for all we know. He shot down the school superintendent idea after a little bit. But man, you could be talking about Vernon Jones, the uh, the Republican nominee for, or at least going up against Richard Woods for school superintendent right now instead. But instead, he, he decided to run in a district where he didn't have any roots. He, he was looked at as a carpetbagger the entire time. And Trump's endorsement was enough to get him into a second place in the, in the uh, runoff, gave him 20% or so of the vote in the primary. But that's all it's good for in these races. And Trump didn't really lift a finger. I mean, didn't come and do a big rally for Vernon Jones doing the runoff cycle. Didn't hold lots of fundraisers for him in the runoff cycle. Didn't do much for Jake Evans either. Held a tele-rally for him. Let his picture be used in mailers and things like that, which, which helps. But there was no huge Trump effort in the very end. And the tele-rally was about, what, three minutes of, of Trump talking? Let's listen now to, well, first we'll listen to Vernon Jones, and then we'll hear from Mike Collins. Here's Vernon first. Now, we know the best person doesn't always get elected. You can look at Joe Biden. <laughs> uh, Patricia, he's always um, just graceful. He's accepting his defeat with a lot of grace here. <laughs> Mike Collins, he feels good about his chances going forward. We knew who our voters were, and we saw them turning out an early vote in mass. And uh, yeah, we kind of knew that we, we had a great momentum push behind us. Let's be clear that when we're talking about Mike Collins, we're talking about Rich McCormick, they're not never Trumpers. They're not squishy moderates. This isn't like a rejection of, of conservative values by these voters. Mike Collins is one of the most conservative candidates in Georgia and speaks glowingly of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Rich McCormick, you know, even when he was running in a swing district in the 7th District, it was very narrowly divided. He was not running to the middle. He was running as a conservative. Both these nominees, they support restrictions on abortion. They support expanding gun rights. They support all sorts of culture wars issues that are catered to conservatives. So this was not a rejection of GOP, you know, sort of core conservative issues. This was just a rejection of Trump's picks. Yeah. And it, I'll be interested to see what Trump does and what these candidates do heading into November, because they really do need those Trump supporters, especially in the 10th. Um, well, I mean, I think it's going to be an easy race to win. But Republicans want those Trump voters to still come out to the polls. They still need those votes. And even though these districts have been drawn to be less competitive, they still need, especially for the statewide races, they need every 
conservative voter out there, including the Trump supporters who might still be upset over the Purdue race. And so I'm sure that they would happily accept endorsements from Donald Trump. I know uh, McCormick more than likely would. Obviously, Collins would. And there's no reason that Donald Trump shouldn't endorse them. And it'll be interesting to see if he finds a way to get behind them. Um, And I'm sure that these candidates, even Rich McCormick uh, last night said, hey, we expect to hear from Trump because we're a friend to Donald Trump. And uh, once we hear from him, we'll be able to be a team together. And let's listen to Rich McCormick talk about his views, his vision for the Republican Party moving forward. We have to make sure that we include everybody in this party. I look at the party like a church, and I mean that sincerely. When I look at every person in the party represents a part of this party, and we have to be inclusive of people that don't always agree with us. And we're going to win this together, and we're going to move forward together because that's what the party is about. Talk about a more inclusive GOP. And then in another segment, he talks about how he welcomes Trump's support. He also welcomes support from others who did not back his campaign in this runoff or in the primary before that. And we should talk about the other big Republican race. Trump didn't have a say in this one, but it's the second district race. And this is the battle in Southwest Georgia to go up against longtime Democratic incumbent Sanford Bishop, who's been in office for 30 years. This was between, this was a really interesting battle. It got a little less attention up here in Metro Atlanta, but very fascinating because between Jeremy Hunt, a young black military veteran who is looked at as a party rising star. I mean, Washington folks loved him. They saw him as the is the best bet to defeating Sanford Bishop, who's a moderate Democrat in a district that is drawn slightly more, more competitive for Democrats to hold. Well, he was going up against Chris West, a native of, uh, of, of the district, grew up in Thomasville area, deep roots in the community. And Chris West was outspent about 11 to 1. I mean, millions of dollars were spent on Jeremy Jeremy Hunt, Chris West, I think it was about 250000 Shoestring campaign for Chris West. He narrowly defeats Jeremy Hunt. It, it's probably the biggest shocker, certainly of the runoff, but maybe of the entire election cycle when you, when you, when you take a deeper look at it. Well, this is another race that I have just loved watching unfold because it really did take a lot of twists and turns that nobody expected, it, most especially the final result of Chris West. And to your point, outspent 11 to 1. And that uh, that does not include the immense amount of free air time that Jeremy Hunt got on Fox News. So much so, he was on 15 times. He announced his candidacy on Fox News Channel. Between that and uh, Election Day, he was on 15 times. So many times that one of the challengers in that race who uh, came in third has sued Fox News and Jeremy Hunt, saying that created an unlevel playing field. You know, but it didn't win the day. And I think that's what's so fascinating. Hunt is an incredibly skilled talented communicator. He graduated from West Point. Um, His dad uh, is pastor up here in Atlanta. And so he's got Georgia ties, but he doesn't have ties to that district. He did uh, train at Fort Benning, but I think that is still one of those districts in Georgia. And there aren't, aren't as many as there used to be where you really need to know the people. The voters need to know you and they need to have seen you before you asked for their vote. And that just wasn't the case for Jeremy Hunt. He did not register to vote in that district. He didn't live in that district until he became a candidate. And that just is not a district where that's going to work. It it really felt to me like somebody up in D.C. at the NRCC got out a map and said, oh, 
hey, that Georgia second district is competitive. Who do we know from Georgia? Does anybody know anybody from Georgia? And they're like, oh, isn't Jeremy Hunt? Isn't he from Georgia? And they're like, yeah, get him to run. You know, it just feels like that. I don't have any independent reporting to verify that, but it feels that way. <laughs> well, please get some because that's a great, it's a great. Um, I got a text from a, a longtime West Georgia political observer saying something along those same lines. Can you imagine, this was what this person was texting me, quote, can you imagine waking up this morning, realize you invested nearly nearly $3 million on an unproven 28-year-old kid and you didn't even make it to the varsity game? So that's what those Washington types might be thinking. And look, you know, up until last night, it looked like their plan was brilliant um, because, you know, uh, I was leading some of the national reports that were basically glowing over Jeremy Hunt, and a lot of national media were, were were treating him as like you know a lock essentially as a shoe in, as the easy candidate. And then as this race got a little, the, the election returns got a little tighter, and I was talking to some Republican sort of numbers watchers who were saying, yeah, 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 Hunt will still pull it out because Bibb County's still out, and yeah, I heard the Bibb County the, line, yeah, yeah, some of the denser errors <laughs> were still out, and then. And me and you were texting uh, folks from West campaign who were like, I think we can, I, I, I think this is happening. Guys. It's actually guys. happening. Guys, <laughs> this would be, you know, this would be epic. And, and for them, it was an epic victory. But now, Patricia, the, the real work starts because we talked about Mike Collins. We talked about Rich McCormick. Their races are effectively over. I mean, they're, of course, going to campaign and invest and have ads and mailers and all that sort of stuff. But the, their districts were drawn such safe Republicans that even Lucy McBath decided, hey, it's not worth even trying. She, she switched over to the 7th District. The 6th District was drawn so conservative. The 2nd District down in South Georgia is it's still an uphill battle for, um, for Republicans. I mean, you're going against an incumbent who has high name recognition, who's a moderate, who, who's very careful not to take certain stances that would, that would ostracize and infuriate Republican voters as, as deep roots in the agriculture community there. And will not be easy to defeat, even though the district was drawn to be a little harder for him to hold. Yeah, I think this race is really going to be about 2024. I think there's an anticipation at some point, maybe some point soon, Sanford Bishop will retire if he's not defeated. And then that's when the real opportunity starts for Republicans. But they've also drawn this district in a way that it could be a pickup in a wave election. You know, there are always wave elections where there are two or three or four incumbents who nobody saw going down nationwide. Sanford Bishop, Sanford Bishop rather has, I mean, man, he's done the work in that district. Everybody knows who he is. He's chairman of the Appropriations Subcommittee on Agriculture. He just funnels money back to that place. So everybody knows who he is. But if it's a wave election, it could just be one of those days. You know, there's always some people who who don't quite make it. But now that West is the nominee, he would certainly be the favorite in 2024 if Bishop retires or or whenever Bishop does retire. But, uh, you know, to put a pin on that Jeremy Hunt race, I think he has a big future in either politics or media. But it was it was just not normal that Tom Cotton endorsed him and you know, the, the farm, like cotton farmers in the district <laughs> never heard of him. They're like, who, who is this guy? So you just, that wasn't a, it wasn't a slam dunk, but I think he's probably going places anyway. So much to talk about. A shout out to our friend Ross Spencer and the political team at Fox 5 for their great coverage of the campaign events last night. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song 
the celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. And we are two of the three political insiders at the AJC. And we are also two of the three authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which we work on every day and every night. I think, Patricia, you were up at 3.30 this morning, so um, you must be tired already. (laughs) But we think it sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And for a limited time, you can get six months of unlimited digital access to the AJC for just 99 cents. Politics, investigations, breaking news, sports, dining, and all of our newsletters, including your beloved Jolt, for less than a buck. It's their best offer of the year for the best journalism in Georgia. Go to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast for limited digital access for the next six months for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast so you always know what's really going on. Patricia, the runoffs weren't all that was going on. And imagine it could have been an even busier day because we also had Supreme Court rulings and the big one we were watching on abortion did not come out. But we were busy enough because between runoffs and the January 6th committee, Georgia, Georgia, our AJC politics team, we were running around scrambling. And we had um, several Georgia officials testify, heart-wrenching really, um, to hear Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, their testimony um, before the committee about what Donald Trump's lies about election fraud did personally to them because they were named, they were scapegoated, they were viciously and falsely accused of tampering with a vote with a USB drive as as Shea Moss testified was not a USB drive. It was actually a ginger mint. And Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, people in his inner circle, his supporters, they were promoting these lies to Republican supporters in Georgia and beyond. And Patricia, one of the most gripping parts of the testimony was when we heard from Shea Moss that her grandmother, her grandmother, you know, and Shea Moss was a Fulton County elections worker, we should, we should know, um, you know, one of the many unsung heroes of our democracy. And after all these lies started targeting Shea Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman, we heard that a bunch of pro-Trump supporters basically barged into her grandmother's home and tried to conduct a citizen's arrest. And that, to me, was galling. It was such a living example of the absolute hell that people's lives have become because Donald Trump would not admit that he lost his election. And not only would he not admit it, he went to great lengths to not just get other people involved in helping overturn the election, he was more than happy to throw American citizens out to the wolves to accuse them of things that they never did and to put shame 
and suspicion on them that they never deserved and to put their lives in danger. And they are still in danger. And that is, it was so heartbreaking to see these women's lives turn totally upside down. And they weren't the only ones. And it's still happening. And I think that's what that hearing really brought to life in that moment. Shayma said she still doesn't leave her home. She doesn't go grocery shopping with her mom because she doesn't want her mom to call out her name and hear somebody hear her own name in public. And that is just so devastating. And then we also heard testimony from officials in Michigan and Arizona And the exact same thing or very similar situations happened to them. They had demonstrators outside of their homes late at night screaming at them, be a patriot, you're a liar. The Speaker of the House in Arizona, his daughter was dying, dying in her home, in his home, gravely ill, basically in hospice care in his home. And she was afraid for him because of the demonstrators outside of their house. And this is all because of Donald Trump pushing this over and over and over, pushing these lies and saying, I didn't lose. You lost. I'm not lying. You're lying. You stopped the steal. I'm not trying to steal it. You are. And here are the individual people. Shamos used used Ruby Freeman's name over and over in public, over and over on Twitter, talked about Ruby Freeman in that call with Brad Raffensperger that was then released publicly around the world. That was the number one read story on the Washington Post in all of 2021 was that transcript with Ruby Freeman's name in it. And in her in her little community, she's called Miss Ruby because she runs a little small business. They're like, hey, Miss Ruby. you know. And Ruby Freeman has been made this absolute demon in the storyline of Donald Trump's conspiracies. And it just proved, it just showed the unbelievable human toll that, uh, that that moment in history is continuing to take in these people's lives. Yeah, these actions have consequences. And we heard them in grave detail. Um, and now literally, like, you know, as, as you mentioned, Shea Moss feels like she can't go to a store. She can't go to the grocery store. She doesn't want her name used. Um, she said she's gained 60 pounds because she barely leaves the house. And her mom feels like she's she cannot be safe anywhere anymore. I mean, it, it was we've seen this in writing before. We've read stories about them. We've covered these two women at the AJC. We've covered their lawsuits. But hearing that testimony, there is there is a value, right? You know, a lot of people say, oh, this is just rehash. It's just rehash. There's a tremendous value in hearing it firsthand. And frankly, and we'll switch over to Brad Raffensperger because there is value in listening. We've reported on that phone call. We, have, we obtained it shortly after the Washington Post obtained it way back January. I think it was January 3rd of last year. I've listened to that tape so many times, but still hearing clips of it doing the testimony and, and then having a Brad Raffensperger explain it provided a, you know, a visceral sort of a, a venue to talk about the Trump's efforts to overturn elections in Georgia and beyond. And, and this is what Raffensperger said when he was asked if Trump actually won Georgia, which of course he did not. No, he did not. Uh, I've been traveling through the state of Georgia for a year now and uh, simply put in a nutshell, what happened in fall of 2020 is that 28,000 Georgians skipped the presidential race, and yet they voted down ballot in other races. And the Republican congressman ended up getting 33,000 more votes than President Trump. And that's why President Trump came up short. That's Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of, of Georgia, Republican, and a supporter of Trump, saying that essentially the former president was the author of his own defeat in Georgia. And Patricia, we also heard from Gabe Sterling, one of his top deputies, 
who explained what happened at State Farm Arena. And this was the root of this whole Ruby Freeman, Shea Moss, false conspiracy theory that they were somehow acting illicitly at State Farm Arena, which was used as one of the places where they counted and processed the votes. This is Gabe Sterling debunking, and Gabe became sort of the the debunker-in-chief after the 2020 election. This is him debunking the myths about what happened at State Farm. What it actually showed was Fulton County election workers engaging in normal ballot processing. Um, One of the specific things, one of the things that was very frustrating was the so-called suitcases of ballots from under the table. If you watch the entirety of the video, you saw that these were election workers who were under the impression they were going to get to go home around 10, 10.30. People are putting on their coats. They're putting ballots that are prepared to be scanned into ballot carriers that are then sealed with tamper-proof seals so that you, they can, you know they're not messed with. The elections director from Fulton then called Ralph Jones, who was at the State Farm Arena, and said, what the heck are you doing? Go ahead and stay. And as you watch the video itself, you see him take the phone call as people are putting things away and getting ready to leave. You can tell for about 15, 20 seconds, he does not want to tell these people they have to stay. He walks over, he thinks about it for a second, you see him come back to the corner of a desk and kind of slumps his shoulders and says, okay, y'all, we got to keep on counting. And then you see him take their coats off, get the ballots out. Patricia, that would require a full viewing of the video, which the Trump supporters wouldn't do. I mean, look, someone pointed out to me that I tweeted something in, back in December 2020 when this was becoming a bigger issue, a complete and thorough debunking of the State Farm controversy. WSB did a frame-by-frame video that you can still find on the website. It was actually cited in the, in the Trump phone call. Uh, when, when Raffensperger said, I can send you over the, the link to the WSB piece, um, Trump said, I got my own link. You know, he wasn't interested in the truth. We all knew that, but now we have it, you know, now it's just even more apparent that his own lawyers, his own campaign aides, they were telling him that there was no way that there was any evidence behind these conspiracy theories, and he wasn't having any of it. And I think the value of these hearings also is that it lays out sequentially where it started and where it is ending up. And so all of this started on election night in Washington, inside the White House, when Rudy Giuliani, who multiple Trump staffers have testified, was intoxicated at the White House, Although Rudy Giuliani says he was, um, I think he said he was drinking Pepsi. He was drinking something. Diet tab or something. Something like that. So, but then Trump developed a pattern over and over of being presented with evidence by his own staff that he had lost, but continuing to push it. And Trump staffers said, it didn't matter what we told him. We would say, no, that's not accurate. He would move on to something else. And so we see that, you know, fast forward that to Georgia several weeks later as it's happening in real time. And he's being told by the Georgia Secretary of State, your, sir, your numbers are wrong. Sir, your data is inaccurate. But he moves on to something else. Sir, that is not a suitcase full of ballots. We have the link for you. He doesn't care. He has his own link. So he refused at every turn in Washington and in all of these states across the country. Arizona said the same thing to him. Michigan said the same thing to him. Sir, your numbers are wrong. You lost. He wouldn't hear it. And so he just continued to push this over and over and over. And what is amazing is that we, you and I still talk to Georgia voters who believe it was stolen, who do not think that any of the testimony that they've heard is accurate. In the meantime, Fox News is not airing most of these hearings. And so Raffensperger told Axios yesterday in Washington, I just really wish the people who needed to hear this information were hearing it. And I'm worried that they're not. 
well, we can assure you that many of them are not because we still get tons of emails from people about all sorts of conspiracy theories that are unfounded and lies. But Georgia will continue to be the focus of these hearings. We're also expecting a hearing later on this week that will talk about Trump's efforts to corrupt the Justice Department. And we all know that then U.S. Attorney B.J. Pack resigned rather than deal with the pressure to investigate these false claims of, of election fraud. And then later on, we're going to hear from more about Trump's efforts to appeal to state lawmakers to overturn the vote in Georgia, Arizona, and some other states will certainly be front and center when that conversation continues. And you can continue to count on new episodes of this podcast to come out every Wednesday and Friday or whenever news breaks. And surely we have had lots of that. And we've had a few special episodes this week already. We will see you next time on Political Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.